Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 2, the book of Mark chapter 2. We continue our study through the New Testament. Now, where we left off last week was with the commencement of the gospel of Jesus, the commencement of the good news. And we see Jesus, he begins his earthly ministry. And so we continue here in Mark chapter 2. And in verse 1, let us begin. Verse 1. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, remember, the word is spreading. People are hearing that Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons, and he speaks of a kingdom that is not of this world. And he's calling people to repent and believe the gospel. Remember, we studied this last week in chapter 1. And verse 2 here in chapter 2, we see in verse 2, Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. That's how jam-packed it was. The house got full and people stacked at the door and it got so full that even the outside got jam-packed, not even near the door. And notice what we see here in verse 2, and he preached the word to them. He preached the word to them. Remember, we're at the beginning of the good news and the Lord is making himself known. But at the same time, there is a mixture of faith, a mixture of faith that is necessary. And that's something that the people, they're not accustomed to that. Remember the mixture of faith from Hebrews chapter 4? Remember? I mean, if you've been walking with us for a while, you remember our study in the book of Hebrews. But here in the Mark 2 generation, it's new to the people. And we see something very interesting about healing and miracles, which do happen. But they happen to spark faith and to reward faith. You see, it's not a matter of healing for the sake of healing. I mean, there's something behind it. There's a purpose. Understand what the Bible teaches. And it's, you know, this is something that Jesus, he later speaks of when the masses are following him, when he turns around and says to them, you follow me, you follow me because you like the goodies. You follow me because your bellies are full. You don't like what I teach. And we see that in John chapter six, something that we re we refer to quite a bit where you look at John chapter 6, and you see, you count the numbers of people. At the beginning of John 6, you see 5,000 plus. You see a whole lot of people, 5,000 plus. And at the end of the book of John, you see just 12. What happened? In one chapter, why do we go from 5,000 plus to just 12? Very important to understand. And in chapter 6 of the book of John, you see how the Lord says, he turns around straight up. You know, he feeds the multitudes, praise be to the Lord. But at the same time, he turns around and he says to them, hey, you guys, you guys like the goodies. Your bellies are nice and full, but who among you is going to apply and do what I teach? And so multitudes, they begin to leave him. And then he turns the, the disciples, which are hundreds, and then he gives them more truth. And he asks them a question. He says, does this offend you? And then even among the disciples, they leave him. And at the end, there's 12. You see, very interesting. Understand, we're at the beginning of the good news here. I meant straight up with Paul. Remember, Paul, he pleaded with the Lord three times. And the Lord said to him, no. But he said no for a reason. And the reason was because, Paul, in your weakness, I am stronger. That's what the Lord says to Paul. 
And so a lot of times what happens is that, you know, as believers, we have to be very careful with healings and miracles because they absolutely do happen. And praise be to the Lord. But remember, every high priest has gifts. Remember Hebrews? And there are gifts of healings. But what we have to understand is the formula. The formula within oneself, and then also there's a formula for usage and a formula for application and a reason for use. I mean, last week in our study in chapter one, last week we see how Peter's mother-in-law, she got the sickies. She got the sickies and she was healed. The Lord healed her. And then we see how Timothy, remember our study in in the pastoral epistles and you know what, what Paul writes to young pastor Timothy? And we see how Timothy, in Paul's letters to him, Timothy got the sickies too. But what we see is that it appears there was no healing with him. And when we understand formula, formula of self, usage, application, and reason of use, we can see clearly. We can see very clearly. I mean, to the extreme, you have, you know, so-called healing ministries, And, you know, the healing ministries, too often, they make a mockery of things of the Spirit. And you see this, you know, commonly with the hyper-charismatics. And to the other extreme, you have those who deny things of the Spirit. And you see this among the Calvinists and the Reformed. And so here in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus. Packed house. Packed house. You know, inside the house, outside the house. Just loaded with people. Full house. And in verse 3, look what happens. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now, in the Greek, this includes the paralytic, includes the the, the, uh, definition of palsy, which is like a muscle paralysis. And sometimes with with this form of palsy, depending on the form of palsy and the intensity or, you know, sometimes it can be have tremors and shaking, too. There's a a muscle paralysis. And so in verse 3, we see they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And in verse 4, when they could no longer come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was so that when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, let's look what we see so far. In the realm of faith, let's look what we see. There's a total of five guys. A total of five guys. One is paralytic on a, on a bed. And some, some translations and some uh, 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 other gospels, they say uh, the paralytic is on a mat. So when you think of bed, he's not like, kind of like, you know, like a, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, uh, like, uh, the, uh, the Sealy, the Sealy mattress. It's not like that. You know, that's kind of more modern, you know, it's like a, more of a mat, like a, like a, like a cot type type. And so you have a paralytic is on a mat or a, on a, on a bed here. And there's a total of five. One is paralytic. And they hear that Jesus is healing people and casting out demons. And, you know, Everybody, the town, the people, surrounding areas, the word is spreading that there's something different about this Jesus, something different. And so these five guys, they hear, you know, hey, guys, did you hear? Jesus, he's at this guy's house in Capernaum. And remember, see, the paralytic can't walk. The paralytic can't walk. But the four, the four, they say, hey, let's carry him in the bed and let's take him to Jesus. 
Now, are, are they next at the next door neighbor house? You know, I don't know. That doesn't say like the proximity to from where they are to where they're going. It doesn't say proximity. Is it the next town over? I don't know. Several towns over? I don't know. But by the time that they arrived at the house, the place was jam-packed. Jam-packed. I mean, if you've ever carried a person before, you know, that's quite the task. I mean, if it's a baby, that's one thing. You know, if you're carrying like a, a little baby, you know, you're, that, that's, that's one thing. But if it's an adult, that's a big task. And I suspect that there was some distance to the travels because if it was next door neighbor's house, you know, they could see a small gathering and most likely enter the house before the crowds got huge. But they hear of Jesus at this house, as many did. And many could walk fast, maybe even run because they're not carrying much, not a bed. I mean, you know, you hear that, well, this, this, this guy, his name is Jesus and he's casting out demons and performing miracles. I mean, people would hear that. It's like, where is he? And boom, they're booking it. They might have like, you know, a little sack of something or carrying, I don't know, like a jug of water. I don't know. They might be carrying something, but they're not straight up carrying a bed with a person on it. And so these five guys, they were likely traveling a distance. I doubt they were next door neighbors because, you know, it was crowded. By the time they got there, it was crowded. And they were likely outrun by everyone else because they arrived late. Now, some, I mean, late enough to where it was crowded is a packed house. Packed house inside, packed house outside. The door, they couldn't get to the door. Now, something important to note is that during the journey, they didn't doubt. They didn't doubt. They didn't say, you know, hey guys, this is dumb. Hey guys, this bed is heavy. Let's go back. That doesn't happen. They hear that Jesus is healing and they're certain. They're certain our friend will be healed. We just got to get him to Jesus. Now, observe this faith. Look at that faith. And so they arrive at the house and boom, full house, crowds. They can't even get in. So picture this. Peeking in a window to see where Jesus is standing and preaching the word. And at the same time, kind of like approximating a location on the roof that would place them above Jesus. And the roofs weren't like today. They were most likely some type of straw. And so they look in the window, they see, okay, Jesus is, okay, he's, you know, you know, 10 feet deep and, you know, from this wall, okay, you know, maybe like five feet over here and kind of making an approximation. And then they go to the roof and they say, okay, approximately he's right here. And what do they do? They, you know, they get the, they, they get the bed on the roof with the paralytic friend, which, you know, that's a big task. That's a, to, to, to. To take a person and lift a person on the roof, that's a big task. But then you do it with a bed, that's a big task. And let's not forget the distance that they just traveled. And so now they're on the roof, all five. And the four, they start digging away, pulling away at the straw, digging and digging. And finally, they have an opening. And they lower their friend down from the roof. Now, Picture that interior room where Jesus is teaching. I mean, the early people, the people that got there, you know, they got the best seat in the house. And presumably the lay ones, you know, they, they you know, the, the, they, they have the, the better seat. The, the people who got there early, they got the better seat. 
they got the better seats. And at the same time, these five, now they have the better seat in the house. I mean, it took a little work, but there they are at the very presence of Jesus. They're not like, you know, 10 feet away. They're not 20 feet away. They're not at the door where they can kind of see. No, they're right there. Remember, they did the approximation. They look in the window. They say, okay, 10 feet from this wall, five feet from this wall. Okay. They look at the roof, do their measurements. Okay. Right about here, we're going to dig. Now, now it took some work, but now they're in the presence of Jesus. And look what is written here in verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, understand, when Jesus saw their faith, but understand the faith it took to reach this point, the faith of all the opportunity there was to doubt, and they didn't doubt. They didn't get, you know, they weren't like, say it was like, you know, miles and miles and miles away. They didn't get to mile one and be like, hey guys, this is dumb. Look, you know, I'm sweating. This bed is heavy. You know, hey, let's just go back. No, they didn't do that. They kept going. They didn't doubt because they knew, they knew that Jesus heals. And the paralytic, he couldn't walk there. I mean, sometimes you see people with, you know, a mild form of palsy and they can still walk. Sometimes with a cane and, you know, sometimes you see people with palsy and, you know, they're in a wheelchair and they don't have big muscles because they haven't used them. Sometimes, you know, they're really skinny and they're, they're in their wheelchair, you know, and you see these people. And you know what breaks my heart? What breaks my heart is that we don't see many of these folks today. I mean, when I was a kid, when I was in school back in the day, it wasn't uncommon to see kids in wheelchairs. You know, they had special buses and the buses, they had lifts that would pick them up in the wheelchair. You know, the, you know, the, the kids would be there at the wheelchair, you know, and sometimes several kids at the bus stop with the wheelchair and then the bus would come and the special bus, the big doors would open and this lift would come and the wheelchair would go on and it lift them up. And then you see like a, like a whole bunch of wheelchairs. And then they would arrive at school and sometimes there were special learning classes that they would have, but then sometimes they would be in regular class too. And we don't see that very much anymore. You know why? Because pregnant women, they go to the doctor, they get all their tests, you know, and the doctor, the, the doctor tells them about a deformity or a mental disability or a physical disability. And the doctor tells them that the child is going to be a burden. The quality of life, it's going to be terrible. That's what the doctor tells them. And then the doctor tells them, hey, you can get an abortion. You can get an abortion and you can enjoy your life without the burden. And we don't see these kids in schools anymore. Why? Because the parents have aborted them. And it kills me. It breaks my heart. These people with deformities and mental disabilities and physical disabilities, they're the most beautiful souls you'll ever meet. Very, very beautiful people. And so we read this account in Mark, and I can't help but fall in love with this paralytic and his four friends. Such beautiful, beautiful, beautiful faith. Strong faith. And look what Jesus says, you know, when, you know, he saw their faith in verse five, plural. Jesus saw their faith, plural. 
And then he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Whoa. Like music to the ears, my sins are forgiven? And Jesus didn't see the faith in just one because the text says when he saw their faith, plural. And when you think of what the paralytic couldn't do, physical limitations, he couldn't have walked there by himself, no way, because of his limitations as a paralytic. But then there were four. Hey, let's take him to Jesus. We got to get him to Jesus, you know? They're sweating, you know, a mile in, they're sweating. Hey, I don't care, forget the sweat, you know? My arms, they're hurting because he's heavy, you know? And hey, this, this, the, the corner of this thing, it's hitting my leg. It's making my leg raw here and it hurts. But hey, we got to get him to Jesus. Two miles, three miles. They never say, oh, you know, hey guys, this is dumb. Let's go back home. They don't say that. They keep on going. And even when they arrive, they're like, oh man, you know, look, it's crowded. We can't get in. So, hey, let's go back. No. They said, no, we're, we've come too far. You know, we know that Jesus, he's going to heal. And so they kind of approximate, look in the window. They say, okay, here's, you know, 10 feet here, five feet here. Boom, boom, boom. We'll look at the roof. Okay, right about here. X marks the spot. We got to get to right there. And then they take the, take the paralytic, lift him up on the bed. They don't just lift up the paralytic, they, the, the whole bed. They lift him up. I mean, picture the, I mean, if you've ever carried a human, like an, a baby is a baby, but if you ever like carried a, an adult, that's, I mean, if you've ever carried an adult, like, you know, like 10 feet, you know, that's one thing. If you ever do like 50 feet, that's another thing. But like a long distance. And you got like a four man crew and they're carrying their friend. He's paralytic. And then they get him on the roof, which that's a big deal. That's a big task in itself. I mean, to get from point A to point B, that's one thing, which is a big task. But then to get him on the roof, that's another thing. And then to lower him from the roof. And Jesus sees their faith. Look at the faith that we see. Let's get him to Jesus. And now, what's so beautiful about fellowship, faith and fellowship. Remember, faith is a package deal. And we see that with these four because, no, they're trucking it. Hey, mile one, mile two, mile three. I don't know the distance, but I know that it's not the next door neighbor's house. And you look at this distance they travel, carrying their friend on the mat, on the bed. And they don't doubt. They're like, oh, hey, guys, this is dumb. Let's go back. Look, we're sweating. You know, my arms are sore. My legs are sore. Look, the, the bed is rubbing my leg raw. And no, that doesn't happen. We got to get him to Jesus. You see? Faith and fellowship. So beautiful to see in what we see here in Mark chapter 2. And, you know, it could be five people here. It's five guys. It could be five. It could be four. It could be three. It could be two. But I'm talking about faith and fellowship. People that help you get to Jesus and stay with Jesus. It's a very, very special group of people that does so. To get to the biblical Jesus and stay with the biblical Jesus. Very important to understand not one of the many fake Christs, but the real Christ. Remember, Jesus says of the last days, one of the signs, when the disciples asked him, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And one of the signs that he says is that there's going to be many Christs. Many Christs. 
But even in the midst of the craziness we see among what is fake, there still remains the real, the real Jesus, the real Christ. Very important to understand. When we look at fellowship, it's like, wow, this, look at this fellowship with the five guys here. Look at this beautiful fellowship. We got to get him to Jesus. And today, today, you know, like take this, you know, for example, you know, today, four friends say to another person, hey, we're going to take you to church. You know, Pastor Osteen, he's going to help you. Pastor Hin, he's going to help you. Pastor Meyer, she's going to help you. Listen, wrong formula. Wrong formula. Absolutely nothing will happen. Absolutely nothing will happen. I mean, nothing will happen from the Lord. The person will get a pep talk, some self-esteem, a little therapy session, but it's not from the Lord. It's not holy. It's not from the Spirit. It's not of the Spirit. There's no healing from the Lord in that situation. It's from man. It's carnal. You see? That's why you see people messed up. And who isn't messed up without the Lord? I mean, I've lived life without the Lord and I was messed up and I don't like that. And you might be living life without the Lord and you might be thinking like, wow, my life is pretty messed up. You know why? It's because it's without the Lord. I mean, if you're not walking with the Lord, that's the reason why. That's why straight up. And so you see people sometimes they're straight up messed up, but who isn't without the Lord? And then they go to church and they might appear to be fine for a time, but a couple weeks later, they're still messed up. They're still messed up. Because all they got at church and all they get at church, if the formula isn't right, it's a pep talk, self-esteem session. And you know what happens? Those things, they wear off because it's only temporal. It's only temporal. You say, wait a minute, the church isn't Jesus. And to one degree, I can see the point. But don't forget, don't forget Jesus asked of Saul, who was haunting the church, he says, why do you persecute me? But then also remember that there exists a group of people who assume they are the church. They assume they are the church. And Jesus will tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. So notice, people who all believe in Jesus and yet Jesus indicates of one group that they abide in him and in another group that they do not abide in him. And meanwhile, while living, they're all believers. And what we see is something already told in the it is also written. You know what we see? It's the wise virgin and the foolish virgin. We stress formula for a reason. We stress formula for a reason. It's got to be right. It's got to be right in you. It's got to be right in me. It's got to be right in fellowship. Always accounting for babies. It's got to be right in the overseers, in the elders, in the pastor. It has to be right. For these four men in Mark 2, for these four men to bring their friend to Jesus with a faith that's straight up off the charts. It's so beautiful to see. And for the paralytic, his sins are forgiven. He's 100% healed in terms of 
being clean before the Lord, sins forgiven. Now, this kind of healing is not according to the flesh because the paralytic is absolutely clean, but his, he's clean before the Lord. He's pure before the Lord, sins forgiven. But then something else happens. Something else happens. Let's look at verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Very interesting what we see. Very, very interesting. Who had the best seats in the house? Not standing, sitting. The best seats in the house. The crowds came. Jesus was preaching. The five guys were restricted from entering the door. And part of that restriction was due to the front row seats occupied by the scribes. Did the scribes come for healing? Did they come to hear the good news? I mean, why were they there? Why were they there? Supposedly, these were the so-called experts in Torah. Remember, they were scribes with knowledge of the text, knowledge of the teachings of Moses. And in verse 6 here, they got the best seats in the house. Best seats in the house. And they're not reasoning among themselves. They're reasoning in their hearts. It's a reasoning and consideration within their own selves. And the Bible reveals to us what they were thinking. It's not like they, you know, they put their heads together and says, hey, guys, you know, this Jesus, he's talking about this, this, this. No, no, no. They were thinking in their minds, the reasoning in their hearts. And the Bible tells us what they were thinking. You say, hold on a second. Mark is writing about it. Absolutely. But Jesus told Mark. And the word became flesh. Look what the scribes, experts in Torah, so-called experts in the Old Testament. Look what the scribes were thinking in verse 7. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Interesting to note. The scribes, they pretty much answered things themselves. I meant, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they attribute to Jesus, they call it blasphemy. These so-called experts of the text, they forgot about the stump and the rod written long ago. They forgot about the stump and the rod and they call fulfillment blasphemous. And in verse 8, look what happens. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? I mean, this should have convinced them right there. I mean, straight up. Because, you know, they're thinking and reasoning about things in their minds and in their hearts. You know, nothing verbal has been spoken by them. And then Jesus speaks to them, addressing their thoughts. That should have straight up convinced them right there. Like, boom, okay, there's something to this Jesus. That should have convinced them right there. And so Jesus, he asks them, he says, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? In verse 9, which is easier? 
Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? I mean, in verse 9, we read this. Does this mean that Jesus took the easy route in forgiving the sins of the paralytic? Not at all. Not at all. Remember, there's a reason and purpose for his method, we'll say. There's a reason and purpose for healing. Just as we look at, you know, uh, 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 Peter's mother-in-law, and then we look at Timothy. It's like, wow, you know, there's healing on one end, but then there's no, assumedly no healing on the other end with Timothy. But when we understand that there's a reason and purpose, it's not to attempt to, you know, you have these healing ministries and, you know, these healing ministries, they place such accolades with the pastors with the leadership of these healing ministries like they're like you know like wow you know this guy can heal this guy can heal and then they make it a mockery but when we understand that there's a very specific reason and purpose for healing and healing is a gift from the spirit the formula's got to be right the formula must be right not to turn it into like a crazy sideshow, which oftentimes you see with the healing ministries. They turn it into crazy town. But understand there's a reason and purpose for healing. Now, remember Jesus, he's speaking to the scribes, so-called experts of the Old Testament, experts of Moses, experts of the law. And the scribes do know the scribes, they absolutely know that only God can forgive sins. They know. And look what Jesus tells the scribes. In a crowded house, people are witness. The paralytic is witness. The other four are witness. You know, maybe a couple around the room. Maybe like one made it down, you know, rope, rope the, you know, really guide the, the bed from the roof. But, you know, maybe there's two or three still up on the roof. Maybe by now they jump down and they're in the room. But there are witnesses. The crowds are inside and outside. They're all witnesses. And look what Jesus tells the scribes to the so-called experts, the scribes. He says in verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now remember, he told the paralytic that his sins were forgiven. And his sins were absolutely forgiven. And the scribes were thinking, it wasn't spoken, but they were thinking, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he addresses them. The experts, so-called experts of the Old Testament, experts of Torah, experts of the prophets. And, you know, these scribes, they know that only God can forgive sins. And we already know that these so-called experts, they already forgot the stump and the rod. They already forgot. And they think of Jesus as blasphemous. And Jesus already knows what they're thinking, not what they said, what they're thinking. And then Jesus tells them, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, the on earth part, that's a huge deal. That's a big deal, the on earth part. The scribes, they know that God is in heaven. They do know that only he can forgive sins. 
They do know of a coming Messiah because the Old Testament testifies of a coming Messiah. Now, not to get off track, but turn really quick to John chapter 4. Really quick. John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, verse 25, what's happening is Jesus, he's speaking to the woman at the well. At the well. He's speaking to the woman at the well. A woman of Samaria. A woman of Samaria. And I say that for my rabbinical friends. A woman at the well of Samaria. And in verse 25, John 4, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see, as the Lord makes himself known, who is it that receives? Turn really quick to John chapter 1. Just a couple pages back. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, verse 45, when Jesus is calling the disciples. And in verse 45, John 1, verse 45, look what happens here. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice, Philip, he knew about the stump and the rod. You see, something that the scribes in Mark 2, they forgot. But Philip, he knows. He knows all about the stump and the rod. And he says to Nathaniel, he says, we found the Messiah. We found of whom Moses wrote about. We found of whom the prophets wrote about. We found the Messiah. In verse 26, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good? Philip said to him, come and see. <laughs> I love this. I mean, like, hey, you know, you'll see for yourself. Come and see. In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Now remember, the Lord, he sees the heart. He tests the mind. He knows the motives. And he says, an Israelite indeed. Now, if you've been walking with us for a while, and you've heard of our studies in Torah, and Joshua, and Judges, and Ruth, and, you know, we're presently in 1 Samuel. And for Jesus to say, an Israelite indeed. If you've been walking with us for a while, this very likely resonates with you. Very likely. Why? Because you understand the formula. You understand formula. I mean, an Israelite indeed. Can that be said of Eli? Can it be said of Phineas? Can it be said of Korah? You see? 
an Israelite indeed. Can it be said of Hannah? Can it be said of Samuel? Can it be said of Deborah, of Jephthah, of Joshua? When you understand the formula, for Jesus to say, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit, knowing who Jesus is, that he knows the motives and he sees the heart for him to say, an Israelite indeed, that's a big deal. I mean, according to the flesh, all Israelites, you know, they're, they're, they're all Israelites. But an Israelite indeed. And that's what the Lord says of our beautiful brother, Nathaniel. And in verse 48, notice what happens here. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know me? I mean, it's so beautiful because remember, Nathaniel is walking towards Jesus and Philip just told him, you know, we found the Messiah, you know, the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. And then Jesus says of Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed. And then Nathaniel, you know, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, let's get in my time machine. Let's say you and me were, you and me were in the era of the law prior to the church age. And let's say that you're by yourself and you're praying and you go into your prayer closet and you're praying, you go in your, you, you, you pray, you're in your prayer closet. And then I come to you after you're done praying and I tell you, Hey, you know what? We found the Messiah. We found the Messiah, the one who Moses wrote about, the one who the prophets, you know, they told us about him. And I say to you, hey, come on, I'll take you to him. And as you approach him, he says, an Israelite indeed. Now, if you're Jewish, you might be like, okay, an Israelite indeed. But if you're Gentile and you hear an Israelite indeed, remember the, the branch doesn't support the root. The root supports the branch. And so you're approaching Jesus and he says to you, an Israelite indeed. And you say, how do you know me? Remember, we got in my time machine and we went prior to the church age. And then you ask, he says, you know, an Israelite indeed. And you say, how do you know me? How do you know me? And he says, before this fellow came to you, before this chap came to you, when you were in your prayer closet, I saw you. That's, that's big. You see, and that's what happened with Nathaniel. That's what happened with Nathaniel. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, hey, I saw you, Nathaniel. And in verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus, in verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, <laughs> he says to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? I mean, I love this so much. You, know, you believe because of that? I mean, you know, not, not, to, you know, no, no, no offense to Nathaniel or anything, but Jesus says like, because of that, 
I mean, unbeknownst to Nathaniel, you know, he's going to see miracles. He's going to be, he's going to walk with Jesus and he's going to see miracles. And Jesus says, you believe because I saw you. I said, I saw you under the fig tree. And look what he says to Nathaniel. You will see greater things than these. You will see greater things than these. For Nathaniel and Philip, look what a right understanding of Moses and the prophets, of Torah and the prophets, the Old Testament. Look what a right understanding of the Old Testament, what it led them to. The right understanding of the law served as a tutor. You see, served as a tutor to bring them to the Messiah, to bring them to Jesus of whom Moses and the prophets wrote of. And so with the old texts, the, the texts of old, Philip, Nathaniel, and also the Samarian woman at the well, they knew, they knew that Messiah was coming. They knew. And they believed. And they received him. You see? So now, let's go back to the crowded house in Mark chapter 2. Packed house. Packed house. Mark chapter 2. Let's go to Mark chapter 2. It's a straight up packed house. The paralytic, you know, his sins are forgiven. He's on his bed before Jesus. And there's a hole in the roof. The best seats in the house, they're occupied by the so-called learned ones, the scribes, who think of Jesus that he is blasphemous. The scribes know that God's in heaven. They know that God is in heaven. They know that only God can forgive sins. They know of a coming Messiah. Remember, they're the so-called experts. Experts in the law, experts in the prophets. They're the experts. They're the scribes. They're the learned ones, supposedly. But instead of believing and receiving Jesus, they consider him as blasphemous. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, very interesting to note, you know, to, for the scribes hearing what Jesus says, that he has power on earth, on earth, that's big. Because where else has this power been exemplified? knowing that God is in heaven and that only he can forgive sins. And Jesus has just forgiven the sins of the paralytic who was obstructed by the scribes because remember the scribes, they get the best seat in the house and the house was full. And such power is only from God. And what is fulfillment? The scribes, the so-called learned ones, they call it blasphemous. You see? The religious establishment, the religious leaders. Now, there's something very interesting we see when Jesus speaks to the religious establishment because in the course of time, he will say woe to them. W-O-E. Not good. He will say woe to them. He will say woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In the course of time, he will call them whitewashed tombs. And he'll say it directly to them. 
but not yet. Not yet. Right now, in Mark chapter 2, he's reasoning with them. He's reasoning with them. Just like Isaiah writes, Come, let us reason together. And so for Jesus to say, so that you scribes may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. On earth? Where has he been? Where has he been? Remember, Jesus was preaching in the house for some time. Enough time for the five guys to get there and climb on the roof and dig through the roof. I don't know how long their journey was. But I know it wasn't, you know, 10 minutes. They, 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 they weren't the next door neighbors. But it was enough time for the five guys to get from point A to point B to arrive at that house. And then enough time for the five guys to get up on the roof. And then enough time to dig through the roof. And then enough time to drop their friend down. Which probably wasn't, you know, that long of time to drop them from the, drop the paralytic from the roof to the ground to the floor. But there was some time. And so for those scribes to sit in the best seats of the house, front row seats, the best seat in the house, within 30 seconds of Jesus speaking, within 30 seconds, those occupied in the best seats in the house, the experts of the ancient texts, they should have known exactly who was speaking within a couple minutes, within an hour, within a couple hours. They should have known that Messiah has arrived. They should have known that Messiah is here. That's what should have happened. Because, listen, these are the experts. They're the so-called experts. They should know the text. They forgot the stump. They forgot the rod. And then the so-called non-experts, the so-called unlearned ones, speaking of Philip, Nathaniel and the Samarian woman, they knew within five minutes. They knew within five minutes. I mean, if that, with Nathaniel, he knew within two seconds. You know, Jesus says, you know, I saw you under the fig tree. Boom. Nathaniel knew. Within five minutes, I don't know how long that conversation was with the Samarian woman, but it wasn't, you know, five hours. They knew. Within five minutes, maybe even two seconds with Nathaniel, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. The, the Sumerian woman, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And he straight up reveals himself to her. I am he. Nathaniel, Philip. They knew that Moses wrote of a coming one. They knew that the prophets wrote of a coming one. And Philip knew that, you know, hey, we found him. He goes like that, hey, we found him. We found the Messiah. Nathaniel, you know, does, you know, what, 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 can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see? And then Nathaniel, you know, how do you know me? Asking of Jesus, how do you know me? When Jesus says, you know, an Israelite indeed, how do you know me? Just like your prayer closet, remember? You know, Jesus says to you, an Israelite indeed, and you say, how do you know me? He says, I saw you in your prayer closet when you thought you were all alone. I mean, you were all alone, according to the flesh. 
You're in your prayer closet. And Jesus says, I saw you in your prayer closet. And that's what the Lord says to Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree. And boom, belief. And not just believe, they receive Jesus. You see? And so here you have the scribes in Mark chapter 2. Here you have the scribes. 10 minutes of speaking, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours. However long it took. Remember, you know, we're, we're in the house. Jesus is preaching the word. But meanwhile, there's five guys making this trek. I mean, it's five guys, but, you know, four guys are doing the walking. And they're making this trek. Nowhere along the way do they say, hey, guys, this is dumb. Let's go back home. Nowhere. They're trekking. They're making this trek. They're making this journey. We got to get him to Jesus. You see? And this whole time, you know, 10 minutes of Jesus speaking, preaching the word, two hours, three hours. And then the roof opens up. The paralytic is lowered down and Jesus forgives his sins. And the so-called learned ones, they call Jesus blasphemous. It's in their hearts. It's unspoken. And yet Jesus, he knows. They call him blasphemous. When Nathaniel called him king of Israel. You see? And in verse 10, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic in verse 11, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose, took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all. Remember, it was a packed house, inside and outside, packed. And we see in verse 12, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. I mean, you know, it puts things in perspective. You know, when Jesus said to Nathaniel, you know, in proper perspective, when Jesus says, you know, hey, you're going to see greater things than this. I mean, when Jesus said, you know, you believe because I said I saw you in the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than this, Nathaniel. And look what's happening. A paralytic? Can't walk? I mean, he's carried in his bed on his mat. He's carried. And already Nathaniel is like, he's seeing all these things. I mean, something so simple, something so simple in terms of what was revealed to Nathaniel. So simple. It was received so easily into a heart of jello, nice and soft ready and prepared to receive the law's fulfillment, the fulfillment of the prophets, the tutor bringing Nathanael to the Messiah, an Israelite indeed. Circumcision of heart. You see? Look at Nathanael's heart. Softer than the softest jello. Two seconds, boom. King of Israel. You are the Messiah, King of Israel. You see, he was 
observing the law. He knew Torah. He knew that Moses wrote of the Messiah. He knew that the prophets wrote of the Messiah. And his heart was nice and soft, softer than the softest jello. And Jesus says, you know, an Israelite indeed. Nathaniel asked him, like, how do you know me? How do you know me? He says, I saw you under the fig tree. Just like the example we gave, you know, I saw you in your prayer closet. And with a heart that's beautifully soft, nice and soft, softer than the softest jello. It didn't take him, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. It didn't take him, it didn't take him that long to believe. No, two second job. Boom. You are the king of Israel. You are Messiah. You see how the soft jello heart prepared by the law and the prophets, how the heart receives Jesus and acknowledges Jesus. Very important to understand that the law is a tutor, brings to Christ. An Israelite indeed. Then we see here in verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea in verse 13. And all the multitude came to him and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, Levi is Matthew. You know, it's not exactly in the text, but somewhere along the line, there was a name change, just like we see with Peter, you know, Simon, Cephas, and, you know, now it's Peter. And I'm so in love with Matthew. Brother Matthew, I'm so in love with him. Because Jesus says, you know, follow me, follow me. And there's no arguing, no complaining, you know, Matthew, boom, okay, I'll follow you. So he arose and followed him. Jesus says, follow me, boom, rose, okay, I'm on board. Consider these hearts. Consider these hearts. And remember, we're not with the so-called learned class. Look at the scribes. Look at the Pharisees. Yeah, they have knowledge. Yeah, they have knowledge. Just, you know, aside from the fact that they forgot the stump and the rod. Aside from that, what the prophets say. They supposedly have the knowledge of the text. But remember, it is also written that, yes, knowledge is a gift. Knowledge is a gift. But at the same time, those who know, know in part. See, there are limitations to knowledge. The greatest gift is love. And so Matthew, you know, two seconds, two seconds with Nathaniel, boom, you are the king of Israel. Jesus says, follow me. That's not even, that's like, you know, less than two seconds. Jesus says, follow me. Boom. Hey, I'm on board. He arose and followed him. Look at how the tutor brings them to Jesus. And the tutor kept their hearts nice and soft, softer than the softest jello. And here we are in the New Testament. But if you've been walking with us for a while, look at Eli and look at Hannah. Look at Eli and Hannah. Both are parents. 
Eli has kids. Eli has sons. And Hannah has a son. And you would think Eli, as high priest, you would think like, oh, surely the Lord is with him because look, he's high priest. And But when you understand formula, when you understand formula, you see, wow, Eli's defunct. Something's wrong with Eli. Something's wrong in the house of Eli. The formula is off. Now look what happened to Eli. He's dead and his sons. Then you turn your gaze over to Hannah. She's not a priest. She's not a prophetess. She's not a high priest. But you turn your gaze over to Hannah and you can see the beauty. A soft, soft, beautiful heart. Circumcision of heart. You see, she's female. According to the flesh, she cannot be circumcised. According to the flesh, it's impossible. But according to the spirit, look at her heart. Nice and soft. Softer than the softest jello. And look how the Lord responds to her prayer. Barren. And now she has a son. And honoring her prayer before the Lord. Look at little Samuel. Now he's not little Samuel. Now he's big Samuel. And there was no widespread revelation in those days. The Lord was silent. When the law says that the Lord would not be silent. That he's going to speak to the people through the priesthood. That's what the law says. And yet you see in the era of Eli. The Lord was silent in those days. Why is that? Eli had the wrong formula. You see? Hannah, right formula. Samuel, right formula. Who had ears to hear? Not Eli. Little Samuel. Remember the Lord spoke, you know, Samuel, here I am. And then the Lord spoke of his judgment on the house of Eli. See, very important to understand. Formula, circumcision of heart, Christianity, our faith in Jesus Christ, for my beautiful sisters in Christ, our faith in Jesus Christ, it's circumcision. The only way a female can be circumcised is in Christianity, in our faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's not a circumcision of flesh, it's a circumcision of heart. You see, look at how the law prepared these beautiful souls. The Samarian woman at the well, the woman at the Samarian at the well, Samarian at the well for my rabbi friends. Samarian at the well, female, woman. Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew. Look at how the law prepared their hearts and their hearts are nice and soft and within five minutes in some cases you know two seconds and you know in Matthew's case you know it's like a you know it, not that there's any type of racing or anything but in terms of following Jesus you know it's kind of like a toss-up between you know Matthew <laughs> Matthew and, uh, and Nathaniel kind of like a toss-up two seconds maybe one second maybe three seconds but within five minutes 
Look at how the law kept their hearts soft for their day of visitation. And they're at their day of visitation and boom, you are the Messiah. You are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God. You see? But meanwhile, you have the scribes. Meanwhile, you have the Pharisees, the so-called learned ones. You see? We see something in the hearts. The softer the heart, the easier to receive. The harder the heart, the harder to receive. And that's a formula that still applies today. Very important to understand. Today, in these last days, Christians are staring right down the barrel of very troublesome times. And they're unequipped. Because they want to fight the good fight. And there's nothing wrong with that desire. But understand, when salt loses its flavor, the Christian witness can no longer soften hearts. When salt loses its flavor, hearts become harder. And what happens? It gets trampled underfoot by men. Exactly what Jesus says. And what's happening to culture today? It's being trampled underfoot by men. It's just like our study in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It just so happens, it just so happens. We just studied this. Israel in a time of war, but they have no business on the battlefield and they lose. Treating the ark like it's a good luck charm. Christians today in spiritual war, oh, I'm going to I'm going to put this I'm going to wear this cross around my neck. I'm going to wear this cross around my neck. And meanwhile, you know, don't mind the crack. You know, a little sex over here, little Ouija boards over here, little yoga over here. I've got my hot yoga class. So, uh, the, you know, I go to the casino. No big deal. Go to the strippers. No big deal. You know, God is love. God is love. Meanwhile, they got the, the cross on their chest. Wearing it around their neck. And the spiritual war is raging and it's only going to get worse. It's going to intensify and understand as Christians, the weapons of our warfare, the weapons of the spiritual war, they're not carnal. And you have saints on the battlefield of a very, very serious war, spiritual war. And saints are losing. And then you hear Christians, oh, I read the Bible, I read the Bible, and in the end, we win. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, in the end, we win. No, 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 no. In the end, Jesus wins. The question is, who's with him? Who's with him? And so we see in verse 15 here in Mark chapter 2, now what happened as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Now, very interesting what we see here. This is an odd bunch, because you see Jesus, the disciples, the tax collectors, and sinners all together. <laughs> They're all together. Very interesting bunch. Kind of an odd bunch. But in the course of time, what's going to happen is that there will be a separation when Jesus says, hey, you guys follow me because of the goodies. 
Not because of what I teach, but that doesn't happen just yet. That doesn't happen just yet. And just like we see with the religious establishment, there's a time allotted a person. Come, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together. And even Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost. Following Jesus absolutely comes at a cost. Jesus never mandates, you know, you will be my subjects and you will follow me. No, God doesn't make robots. Every single person, every single person, young, old, male, female, of all shapes, of all sizes, and of all colors, every single person has a choice to make. Do I believe or do I not believe? Every single person has a choice for make. And if you're listening and you're not presently a believer in Jesus, but you want to be, you desire to be, the gears of faith are starting to turn and you desire to be a child of God. Hit pause and listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. You commit your life to Christ, and then you come back and you listen. And together, we continue on this journey, because you and me, we're going to paradise. Look what happens here in verse 16. Mark chapter 2, verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him... Eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, in the book of Acts, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there. And if you've been walking with us for a while, you remember. But in the book of Acts, we see when the disciples become apostles, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they have maturity. In the book of Acts, they do have maturity, and they become deadly, the good deadly, the good deadly. And this is where Brother Peter, in the book of Acts, he confounds the religious establishment, and they're blown away by his knowledge of the Scriptures. But that's not yet. That's the book of Acts. Here in Mark chapter 2, the apostles are disciples, and the disciples, they're babies. They're in their infancy. And so the religious establishment, they ask the disciples, and notice what happens. The good shepherd protects them. Look what happens. So the, 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 the Pharisees ask of the disciples, you know, how is it that he drinks and eats with the tax collectors and sinners? But look who answers. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You see, I did not come to call the righteous, he says. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the Greek, it translates as those who are well have no need of a healer, but those who are sick, evil, depraved, diseased, and wicked. And Jesus is saying, I came for them. I came for them. You see, the Calvinists and Reformed have a big problem with their doctrine. One of you know, many areas, but a big problem with their doctrine. Because according to their doctrine, 
God predestines people to heaven and he predestines people to hell. So according to their doctrine, let's scratch off the ones who are predestined to heaven. Let's scratch them off for a moment. And let's look at the ones that are predestined to hell. Because according to their doctrine, Calvinism and Reformed theology, according to their doctrine, there's no hope for them. Those who are so-called predestined to hell, there's no hope for them. R.C. Sproul in his book Chosen says of those predestined to hell that it would have been more loving of God to have not allowed them to be born. That's Calvinism. The Westminster Confession of Faith says of those predestined to hell that their ordaining to wrath is for God's glory. John Calvin in his Institutes says that those predestined to hell, they glorified God. They, they glorify God by their destruction. You see? According to the false doctrine of Calvinism and Reformed theology, the evil, depraved, and wicked, they're predestined to hell. But the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus says, I came for them. You see, Calvinism, Reformed theology, biblically, it's deformed theology. I mean, if you're Calvinist or Reformed, go to thewayunderground.com, thewayunderground.com, and go to the Reformed area, and you can hear the Calvinist pastor say, it's okay to take the mark of the beast. If you submit to that, hello, lake of fire. And I say unto you, come out of her, my people. Look what happens here in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, this is this, the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he's in prison right now. He's in prison now. In the Mark 2, remember that happened last week in chapter 1, but in Mark 2, you know, John the Baptist, he's in prison. And we see that prior to his rest in the gospel of John, he tells his disciples, go to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. But here in Mark, we see that not all John's disciples went to Jesus. Remember, everyone has a choice to make. Every single person has a choice to make for themselves. For themselves. The only deviation from that is with parents of little children. Parents make a choice to believe. But then, you know, there's another choice. Will I teach my kids? Then there's another choice. Will I teach my kids according to scripture? And kids yield to their parents. But in the course of time, a child has a choice to make for himself or herself. Where it's no longer, I will follow my parents or will I follow my parents? In the course of time, when a child comes of age, now it's, will I follow Jesus? You see? And they have a choice to make for themselves. Sometimes it happens at 13, 14. Sometimes it happens at 12, 11. Sometimes it happens at 9, 8, 7. Sometimes younger. Very rare, but it happens. Everybody has a choice to make for themselves. 
And so everybody has this choice to make for themselves, but there's a slight deferral to that with children because a child might just say, okay, I'm going to submit to mom and dad. I'm going to submit to mom and dad. And then at age 10, hey, you know what? I love you, mom. I love you, dad. But now, you know, I choose Jesus for myself. I choose Jesus for myself. And praise be to the Lord. That's a good thing. Look what happens here. In verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came to him. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the, bride, while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now remember, Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what happens when the disciples are physically with the bread of life? You see? It's not just that there's no need to fast. Jesus says, no, no, no. They cannot fast. They cannot fast. He continues in verse 20 and he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, you see what's happening? There are things that Jesus spoke about concerning his death and also concerning his resurrection that the, the disciples in Mark chapter 2, they don't understand. But later, the disciples then understand at a later time when they look back and they reflect Oh, that's what he meant. Oh, that's what he was talking about. Now, it's kind of an understatement to say it like that because, you know, coming to this understanding, it was under sorrow and hardship and tribulation that later turned to joy. I mean, you know, say you and me, you and me, say we're there and say we're babies and we're eating and we're having a meal and we hear Jesus say, the bridegroom will be taken away. We're babies. We're, we're following Jesus and we believe in that he's the Messiah. And But we're babies. We don't have the depth of understanding because we're just babies. Babies are beautiful. The problem is when babies stay babies. But we're babies. We're in infancy. And we hear Jesus say the bridegroom will be taken away. We wouldn't understand. But then let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. And let's say we're in Paul's tiny bubble with Timothy and Titus. And we hear Paul say, the bridegroom has been taken away. You see, when we were babies, we didn't get it. But when we're mature, we get it. And we have joy, a joy that's from the Lord. And we rejoice because of the, it is also written that Jesus will return and we will forever be with our Lord. See, very important to understand. You know, when you're a baby in Christ, I mean, if you're a new believer, like say you just, you, you, you know, you hear us say, you know, hit pause, listen to the message, how to commit your life. And say you just did that like five minutes ago. Say you just did that. There's going to be things of scripture that you do not know. Be of good cheer. Don't be discouraged. Because the problem happens when babies stay babies. That's the problem. But if you're a baby, praise be to the Lord. 
Yes, there's going to be a period of time where you're on spiritual milk and you're getting this understanding of Scripture and how the Lord works. But at the same time, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Because you're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to mature. We see it with Peter when, you know, that the Pharisees ask the disciples a question and Jesus, the good shepherd, he protects them. He protects them. But then later on, you see Peter when he's confounding the religious leaders. They're like shocked and amazed. The high priest. Like, who, who is this? Is this not Peter, the fisherman? And then they remember, oh, remember, he walked with Jesus. So Peter becomes deadly, but not yet. He's just a baby right now. Very important to understand because sometimes I have these conversations with new believers. And it's like, man, you know what? I don't know the Bible like, you know, this guy. I don't know the Bible like this lady. I don't know the Bible like this. And I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you discouraged? That comes in time. That comes in time. And sometimes we have these deeper conversations like, okay, you've been a believer for five years and you you acknowledge that you're a baby and there are things that you don't know. And it's like, it's five years. What's happening? Who's your pastor? Who's your pastor? Maybe he's disqualified. Maybe he's defunct because you're five years deep in the faith and you still don't know. And I don't say that as like a, how dare you, how dare you. I say that as a, how dare the pastor? He has no business at the pulpit. You say, wait a second, my pastor's female. There you go. Wrong formula. Coverings, always male. Old Testament, New Testament. Coverings, always male. Always male. The slight deviation from that is with uh, uh, moms. The covering of the womb. Moms, the covering unto children. Just like we see Hannah as a covering unto little Samuel. Very important to understand. And so Jesus, he's speaking, he continues in verse 21. No one sews a piece, in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And people who sew know all about this. They, they, they know it. Old and new fabric, they have different reactions. I mean, you, you take old and new fabric and you sew them together and then you do uh, like a, 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 the, the, the laundry, you know, you wash it. And then the course of time, wash after wash after wash, something's going to happen. You're going to see in the course of time, the tear, it pulls away the old. Exactly what Jesus says here in verse 21. Very interesting to see this reference to an old garment and reflect back last week in chapter 1. To reflect back to a man in the wilderness eating what is clean while wearing a garment that is unclean. And I speak of John the Baptist. Outside unclean, but inside clean. And here we see Jesus saying that the old doesn't mix with the new. Very interesting. And our Lord continues in verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine, new wine must be put into new 
wineskins. You see, that's what the Lord says. Old and new do not mix. What is new is for the new. And Jesus is teaching about the old covenant and the new covenant. So if the new cannot mix with the old, what is required? To be born again. You see? To be born again. Because new wine is for new wineskins. In verse 23. Verse 23. Now what happened? Then he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look. Why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Notice, notice the Pharisees. Notice the Pharisees, the behavior of the Pharisees. They're following. And it's one thing to follow like Matthew. It's one thing to follow like Nathaniel. But they're following and like, look, you know. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to trap him. And this is only going to get worse. And it's very interesting that within five minutes, who is it? Who is it that sees that Jesus is the Messiah? In some cases, within two seconds. But then who is it that rejects him? You see? And when you look at the heart, you can see that softer than the softest jello, that is good. You see? But a heart of stone, not good. Cannot receive. Very important. So how does a heart get hard? Rejection of the word of God. That's how. Rejection of the truth of God's holy word. That's how a heart gets hard. Rejection of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. And so the Pharisees ask him, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, according to the law, according to the law, the Sabbath is a day of rest. It was unlawful to work. And the Pharisees see the disciples plucking the heads of grain. Now, very important to note, Jesus isn't doing that. It's the, the disciples who are doing it. Jesus isn't. Very important. For my rabbinical friends, go and listen to our study in Ruth. Most notedly, Ruth chapter 4. So here in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees, they question what they see. In verse 25, but he said to them, have you never read? Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him? How he went, verse 26, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread. He ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And also gave some to those who were with him. Very interesting what we see. Now, I can understand the Pharisees being skeptical at first. I can understand it. You know, people say, oh, the, you know, the, we, we hear the Messiah's here. We hear the Messiah's. And I can understand the Pharisees being, okay, let's, let's see who this particular individual. Let's see what, who, who he is, what he says, what he's doing. Let's see. And I can understand the Pharisees being very cautious. 
But in the course of time, as the Lord makes himself known, it's the Pharisees, it's the scribes that should have said, they should have been the ones to acknowledge and proclaim, hey, the Messiah is here. The Messiah has arrived. But just like Eli, just like Hophni, just like Phineas, they made themselves blind. And what's happening here in Mark 2, they're making themselves deaf. And yet Jesus, he reasons with them. He's reasoning with them. Right here in Matthew 2, he's reasoning with them. He's going to say to the Pharisees, he's going to say, whoa, you know, the bad woe, not, you know, W-O-E, woe, exclamation point. That's coming. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's coming. But not yet. Not yet. He's reasoning with them. And in verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is huge. This is a big deal. Remember, in the law, we find the law of the Sabbath, the statute of the Sabbath, the command of the Sabbath. And Jesus speaking to the Pharisees about the law's loopholes and inability of the law. I mean, just look at the law. Just look at the law. There is the Sabbath and the promise of rest. But in the Old Testament, I mean, we... If you've been walking with us for a while, you see, I mean, you know, we've been, after Deuteronomy, we're in Judges, you know, we're in Ruth, and now we're in 1 Samuel, and it just so happens, not too long ago, we just finished 1 Samuel chapter 4, and in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where we see the defeat on the battlefield, and the casualties, and the ark is taken, is there rest? Is there rest? When the Lord promises rest... But do we see rest? Remember, the, the Lord promises rest. But do we see it? When you see defeat, when you see casualties, far from it. Far from it. Does that mean that the law is meaningless? No way, no way, no way. The law is still holy. But remember, it's the additive. It was added because of transgression. It was added because of sin. The law is still holy, but it has a purpose. It is a tutor to bring to Christ. Just like with Nathaniel. The law was a tutor, brought him to Christ, and because of his beautiful, beautiful heart, we got two seconds. You are the king of Israel. You see? The woman at the well. The law was still holy in her day. The law was still holy. And she knew that the Messiah was coming. She's Samarian. You see? And then the Lord reveals himself and says, I am he. And it wasn't two seconds. We had a nice little conversation. You know, the woman at the well and... And Jesus, nice little conversation. But her heart was nice and soft, softer than the softest jello. You see? You see what the law did? The function of the law? 
it was a tutor for Philip. A tutor for the woman at the well. A tutor for Nathaniel. For Matthew. A tutor. But yet you have the religious establishment and look what's happening. Their hearts were hard. And their hearts are getting harder and harder and harder and harder. You see? I mean, look at Abraham. Did Abraham have the Ten Commandments? No. And yet, by faith, it was accounted unto him for righteousness. You see? For my rabbinical friends and Hebrew roots friends, go and listen to our studies through Leviticus, Galatians, and Hebrews. You'll understand more. The Sabbath is the additive for a reason. Understand, man isn't made for the Sabbath. And since that's the case, look what Jesus says here in verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) This is big. This is huge. You see, the Pharisees, the scribes, they should have heard this and been like, like fallen on their face in worship and who was speaking. You look at our study in 1 Samuel, there is no rest. Our study in Judges, there is no rest. I mean, look at, you know, when, when, when the Lord has become forgotten in the book of Judges, yes, there's periods of, you know, time where there are moments of rest, which is brought about by the Judges. But there's these great gaps of time where, whoa, there's no rest. The oppression by these, you know, these other peoples. By the Moabites, by the Philistines, this oppression, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then you see defeat. Where is the rest? And then you see that man isn't made for the Sabbath. And Jesus says of himself, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You see? loopholes in the law because the law brings to Jesus. The law is the tutor that brings to Jesus. But a hard heart? No. The hard heart remains in the law. And in the law is also found death. Death. You see? But the law as a tutor with ears that hear and eyes that see Just like when Paul writes to Timothy, the law is not made for a righteous person. You see? Very important to understand what the Word of God says. The Lord Jesus, He's speaking in a very, very intricate way to the Pharisees. Just like with Paul, people say, oh, you know, like the Holy Spirit, boom, He made Paul a Christian. No, 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 no. That's what the Calvinists and Reformed say, but they're wrong. Oh, look, the Holy Spirit, boom, he made Paul a Christian. No, no, no. Remember, the Lord says, is it hard to kick against the goads? Remember, Paul is a Pharisee, or Saul at the time, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Is it hard to kick against the goads? And Jesus was revealing to Saul exactly who he is. You see? And Saul made a choice. You are Lord. 
You are Lord. You are Messiah. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees in a very, very precise way, he's reasoning with them, allowing them time to make a choice. Remember, the scribes who had the best seat in the house, remember? They had the best seat in the house when the paralytic was brought down from the roof. And hour upon hour upon hour. And they end up calling Jesus blasphemous. But the Philip and Nathaniel and the Samarian woman, the woman at the well, within five minutes, within two seconds, with Nathaniel, I mean, they call him Lord. You are Messiah. You are the king of Israel. You are my Lord. You are my savior. Within two seconds, five minutes, you know, maybe the woman at the well, I mean, she was reasoning with them for a while, but when he revealed, I am he, boom, maybe another two second job. You see, look at the hearts in the Old Testament. Look at Eli, look at Hannah. I meant with carnal eyes, you'd be like, okay, you know, here's Hannah. She's a woman. She's not a priest. She can't be a priest according to the law. I mean, she can't be. I mean, if we were new covenant times, she couldn't be a pastor either. Remember, covering is always male. The exception is with motherhood, you know, unto children. So she couldn't be a covering unto Israel, but she was a covering unto Samuel. You see? But then you look at Eli. He's priest. He's got the he's got the certificates. He's been to school. He's got this, you know, degree. He's got his masters. He's got whatever. All the certifications. He's got the garb. You look at Hannah. You look at Eli. Eli's according to the flesh. He's he's got it. According to the flesh. He's got it. He's got the He's got the, he's been to the training, the education. He's got the garb. He wears it. He, he's got it. According to the flesh. Yes, the appearance. Like, oh yeah, he's got it. But with Hannah, who he thought she was drunk. Remember when she was praying and he thought she was drunk? So with carnal eyes, you look and you're like, okay, here's Hannah. Here's Eli. Then when you look deeper, with eyes to see, and you look at the heart, you look at Eli, and his heart is practically stone. Practically stone. And his heart gets harder and harder and harder, and now it gets to the point where his heart gets so hard, where now it's stone. And that's judgment. And he dies. And not just him, his sons too, because they were wicked. They chose wickedness, you see. And Eli didn't tell them, hey, guys, you're wrong. He wanted to be his best friends. He wanted to be the best friends of his sons. He didn't want to correct his sons. Go and listen to our study, 1 Samuel chapter 2, or chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And then continue in our studies in the Old Testament. Go and listen to our studies. Very important. Then you look at Hannah. Look at that beautiful, beautiful, soft heart. That's softer than the softest jello. She's praying. The high priest thinks she's drunk. 
and the Lord honored her prayer. She couldn't be covering unto Israel, but she was covering to her son, little Samuel. See? And she prepared him, greasing the skids for his service unto the Lord. You see? And then you see Samuel, the rise of Samuel, the fall of the priesthood, the rise of the prophet, the fall of the priesthood. Then you understand formula. And then you see, wow, the Lord, he's silent with the priests, but he speaks to Samuel. You see? That's what happens when you understand formula. And that's what happens when the formula is right in you. When the formula is right in me. Hearts that are softer than the softest jello. Circumcision. True and real circumcision. Not of the flesh. Remember, remember the census in the book of Numbers? The first census? They all died. All male. The second census? Female. The inclusion of females. Second census, females who passed over into the promised land, male and female. You see, very important to understand in Christ, there is no male and female. Why? Circumcision of heart. Within five minutes, two seconds, Philip, Nathaniel, the Samarian woman, they call him Lord. They call him Messiah. But the religious establishment, look at their hearts. Look how their hearts are getting harder and harder. And we're going to continue to see in the Gospels, they continue to get harder and harder and harder and harder. And it gets to the point where when their hearts reach a very high level of hardness, stone, that now they're a threat to the believers. That's what happens when, with hard hearts. They, can, they become a threat to those of the circumcision. And it's true in the church age, the early church age, the book of Acts. I mean, you're going to see it in the Gospels. You're going to see it in the book of Acts. And we're going to see it again in the last days. Hearts that become stone. And they want to kill God's, God's people, both Jew and Christian. You see? And so what about us? What about us? You say, but we believe already. We believe already. And to that, I say, amen. Amen. But when I say, what about us? I'm specifically calling out the non-believer. If you're a non-believer, I'm calling you out. What about us? What about you and me walking together? How about it? I have only one condition. After this message, listen to another. It's called how to commit your life to Jesus. And you do precisely that. You commit your life to Jesus. And what about us? We walk together to paradise. To the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.